0: Well, this weekend and next, we are going to be talking about comparison. And uh, I know for me, I should be over my inclination to look, uh, see what everybody else is doing, and compare myself and determine who I am and how well I'm doing based on what everybody else is doing. Um, I mean, it's been interesting, even as I've prepared this message, uh, in light of Buddy preaching last week, and just to not compare and think, well, how am I going to follow that? And, you know, Also, I spent... This week at a worship conference, uh, over uh, 1,700 worship leaders from all over the country got together uh, to worship with and learn from each other. Uh, it was a wonderful time, but there was this tendency uh, to compare, to compare uh, churches, to compare ministries, to compare songs. I mean, when you get right down to it, it's just kind of sick. I, I just had to start to say, you know, God, do I ever get over this? Um, now, I know I'm not the only one. We're going to be talking about this for a couple weeks, because we live in a world where we are looking to our left and our right, trying to figure out, how am I doing? Am I acceptable? Am I measuring up? Am I okay? And basically, uh, we all want a bigger er added to all the adjectives that describe us. In fact, that's the name of this message today. The title of this message is The Land of Err. In other words, I want to be richer, I want to be skinnier, I want to be smarter, taller, prettier, happier, hipper, talented-er, I want more-er, I want more-er than you, because if I have more-er than you, then I would feel better about me. And I like you and everything, it's just, I would like to go away from lunch, or go away from coffee, or be able to go home, and say, you know, they're good, they're good, but... I'm er, I've got some er, right? And then it gets even worse because you start dating and you you want your boyfriend or your girlfriend to have some er. I want him to be richer. I want her to be skinnier. I want him to be handsomer. And then we get married and we tell ourselves, oh, I'm just helping my spouse reach their full potential. So we start erring them like, honey, you need to get some more er. You need a little more er here, a little more er there, a little less er over here. And it's not even really about them. That's about you, or it's about me. Then you have kids, and, and you see where everybody else's kids are going to school, and you hear about what everybody else's kids are, are reading, and how advanced they are, and how they're playing up in sports, and they skipped a grade, and, and then you start comparing your kids, and you start earning your kids. And parents say, well, he's, he's really a good kid. He's really a good kid. Meaning, yeah, they do this and they do that, but look at some of those other kids. I mean, they would never do that. But again, I mean, it's not even about your kids then. And you're like, well, I just want my kids to reach their full potential when really you compare your kids to other kids. It's really you comparing yourself to other people. You comparing your parenting to other people's parenting. And then to keep going with this, there are people who, you know, we really have... A little bit more er than them. And we look at them because they're a little heavier and they're a little slower, and their son is a little slower. And I notice your daughter is a little shorter, and they're a little poorer, and he's a little nerdier, and I'm nerdy, but he's nerdier. <laughs> and when we look at things that way, we start to have another problem. We start to feel uh, superior er, and we know we shouldn't feel that way. So we, you know, we look at the to the left, and people are better. We look to the right, and people aren't as good, and we're somewhere in the middle, and I don't have to tell you what a bad habit it is, but I mean, it really just is gross. But to keep this going, there's another group of us, sort of a subcategory, that's not happy with er at all. Uh, they, want, they want est. They say, you know, I, I don't want to be richer, I want to be richest. I want to be smartest, happiest, I want to be healthiest. I want to be in a category all by myself. So that when people compare themselves to me, it's like whoa. And maybe there's a slice of you uh, that you're all about this. And again, uh, you know, maybe you lie to yourself. You say, "Well, I'm just reaching my full potential, I'm just going to do my best." And and as we're going to see, there is a place for all of that. But there may be a thread of this other illness in you, uh, where you're constantly, you know, measuring ourselves by the the people around us, you know, trying to determine, are, are we okay? Maybe you're on the other side of this altogether. Uh, maybe you look in the mirror and you realize that, you know, it, it's not his fault that he's richer than me. It's not her fault that she's prettier than me. It's not their fault that their kids are smarter than mine. It's really not their fault. So you look in the mirror and, and you don't like you. You just don't like you. You've get gone beyond not liking other people. But when you look in the mirror, you don't like you. And the reason you don't like you is because you will never be as fill-in-the-blank as them. You may never be that happy. You may never be that happily married. You may never have that kind of financial margin. You may never look like that, uh, you know, drive like that. And your kids aren't going to have those opportunities. And you look in the mirror and you just don't like you. So bottom line, and if you don't get anything else out of this series, if you fall asleep in the next 30 seconds and don't come back, um, so every time, I want you to get this, And if every time you begin veering and you're looking to the left and you look to the right, wondering how, you know, how am I doing compared to everyone else, uh, I think if you started thinking in these terms that this could be a game changer, and it's simply this, there's no win in comparison, There's no win in comparison. Uh, There's no finish line. There's ever no sense of satisfaction. There's no tranquility. There's no win. If you're better than people, that doesn't help you. If you're not measuring up to people, uh, that doesn't really make a difference either. Uh, There's no win in comparison. In fact, there's only loss. Comparison is dangerous. It's a trap. Some of you, if you're really honest, you have debt because of this comparison thing. You've purchased things or you're driving things or you're living in things, wearing things, vacationing with things. You've done things. And the only reason you did it is because you saw what other people were doing. Some of you, you're driving your spouse crazy. You're driving your kids crazy. I mean, you're just pushing them and pushing them. But so much about what you're trying to get your spouse to be or not to be so much of what you're trying to get your kids to be or not to be so much about you. And again, it's dangerous because after a while, you find yourself rejoicing in other people's failures. And you know, it's embarrassing. You know that that's evil. But this thing, it's not just a casual thing. It's a dangerous thing. You know how far it can go. The gospel writers tell us that when the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus and handed him over to Pilate, that he listened to the Jewish leaders and he realized, he even said, the only reason that they handed him over to me is because they're jealous. They're envious. Because he has something that they will never have he has the crowd. He has the crowd and they want the crowd. And this envy thing, this jealousy thing, this comparison thing was so insidious, it drove them to actually hand over an innocent man to be crucified. Now, in a much uh, less extreme way, we have the potential to hurt people or allow people to be hurt because of our tendency to compare uh, where we are, where we aren't, to the people around us. Uh, In fact, the wisest man who ever lived, the wisest man... Uh, other than Jesus, uh, said that envy, envy, if you just let it go, envy ultimately rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. There's no win in comparison. So here's the question that we're going to ask uh, for the next couple of weeks as we kind of wrestle with this, is what do we do? You know, how do you motivate your kids? How do you motivate your spouse? How do you motivate yourself to improve? I mean, we've got to improve. We've got to work hard. We've got to do our best. There's all of that. But how do we do that and not slip into the comparison trap where there's no win and we are constantly frustrated? And well, the answer, of course, is in the Bible. Today, we're going to look briefly at something Solomon said in the Old Testament. I won't jump into the New Testament. So Solomon, who, just to be honest, did more than you will ever do. I mean, whatever you think you're going to accomplish, you're not going to keep up with Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man in the world. Created one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He was the wealthiest person. Uh, Kings and queens um, came and bowed at his feet, begging for wisdom. Solomon looks at the world and he addresses the issue of our tendency to compare ourselves to other people. Ecclesiastes 4. Here's what he says. It's fascinating. Uh, It's in your notes, but I'm going to march through it a little bit at a time. Ecclesiastes 4, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. He says, I've been watching people. I'm a, I'm a student of behavior. And I realize that for the most part, the thing that drives people is Competition. The thing that drives people is they're looking over their left shoulder, looking over their right shoulder, and they're trying to figure out what everybody else is doing, where they're shopping, what they're wearing, what they're driving, and what they're doing, what they're making, how they're living. Their toil is driven by what they see people around them doing. Let me sum- summarize this observation for you uh, in this next statement. Here's what he said. He saw people determining where they were based on where everybody else was. He saw people determining where they were based on where everybody else was. He saw, people, he saw people doing this. Am I okay? I'm okay. Am I okay? I'm not okay. Are my kids okay? My kids are okay. They're fine. He says, it's like he said, I looked around and it looked like everybody was determining if they are okay based on what everybody else is doing. He says, this is just what I've observed. It's, it's human nature. And his summary of this whole idea, this is amazing. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now Solomon, a chasing after the wind, you can't really catch the wind exactly. There's no wind. There's never a sense of satisfaction. There's never any tranquility. There's never any peace. There's no wind. To which some of you, some of the men in the audience today would say, okay, so you're saying we're not supposed to do our best? We're not supposed to try? Are you saying we're just supposed to fold up our hands and kind of sit back and do nothing? Solomon's next statement is this, a fools fold their hands and ruin themselves, he's saying, now don't think for a minute that I'm not telling you to be ambitious. I'm Solomon. Have you seen my temple? I'm Solomon. Have you seen my gardens? I'm Solomon. I've got 300 and something wives and 600 and something concubines. I'm a busy guy. I've been around. I've got a lot going on. I'm Solomon. I have more gold than Fort Knox. I'm Solomon. I'm not saying you sit around and do nothing, that you don't leverage your potential, that you don't be the best that you can be. Only fools fold their hands and do nothing. Okay, Solomon, you got me. So what are you saying? Ecclesiastes 4.6, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And the Hebrew imagery here is, is very, very rich. Here's what this looks like. He, he says it's better to have one hand open. One hand open. The implication being that God can put in or take out whatever he chooses. It's better to have one hand open than to have two fists clenched around everything you can get. It's better to have one hand open with tranquility. It's better to have one hand open and learn how to be content with whatever God has put in or taken out of your hand, than, than to have two fists clenched around everything you can get. He said, because if you live like this, there will never be any peace. There will never be any tranquility. It's chasing after the wind. Because after you have tightened your fingers around all that you can get, there's always something that you can't get. And you're never at peace. There's never any tranquility. And Solomon, the richest guy in his generation, says, I've been watching this, and this is what I've determined. One handful, better is one handful with tranquility than two fistfuls of stuff that I can't ever be satisfied with. In fact, I would love for us to just say this together. Would you read this with me? Better one handful with tranquility. Let's do it again. Better one handful. Now, do you believe that? Really? Do you believe that? I mean, the wisest guy in the world said, better one handful with tranquility. You know, I think this is where we begin to put on the brakes. I think this is a game changer. I think this is when I start looking left and I go, you know what? There's really no point in looking left. And I start looking right. And, you know, there's no point in looking right. I'm just, I'm just trying to get two handfuls. And then when I get both handfuls, I want a third handful, but I've only got two hands. Now Solomon, he keeps going with this. He, he gives another visual. Ecclesiastes 4, seven. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. Now, uh, we don't know if this is a category of people, if this was a friend of his, if this is just a parable that he's telling, but here he goes. There was a man all alone, he had neither son nor brother, uh, which is significant because it meant in this culture that he didn't have anyone to leave anything to. You couldn't leave anything to your wives, you couldn't leave anything to women, um, and so he says that here's a man who doesn't have anything to leave anything to. He's all alone. Yet check this out, there was a man all alone, he had neither son nor brother, there was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. He says, so here's this guy, he works and 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 he works. works, But he's never content. There's always more to do, there's always another goal, there's always something else to achieve, something else to accomplish, something else to build. And then he says, this guy, this guy, one day in the midst of all this toil, never being content, having no one to leave anything to, he stops and he asks a very important question. He says, for whom am I toiling? You know, why am I doing all this? Why do I live like this? Why is it I can't stop and enjoy what I've spent my entire life in order to get? Why am I doing this? Who am I really doing this for? What is driving me? And then Solomon summarizes it this way. Uh, I love this. This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Uh, Bottom line is there's no win. There's no win in comparison. And and I'm not talking about being less productive. Okay? We've looked at Solomon. He did all right. We're going to hear from Jesus. You know, people have been talking about him for 2,000 years, and he got it all done in three years. And the Apostle Paul, he had... He had unique insight into the significance of Jesus' life, uh, his death, his resurrection. Paul was a friend of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, uh, people who knew Jesus. But Paul had unique insight to what uh, that meant for God's glory, for what that meant um, people all over the world, not just Jews, but everyone. So he speaks of that significance. And in doing so, he addresses, uh, as well as Solomon, the issue of, Who I am to look to to discover if I'm okay. He he addresses it in such a way that it gives us a huge clue of how to get out of the comparison trap. Here's what he says Galatians 4. But when the time, but when the set time had fully come, that means when God was ready, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Now, this might be new terminology for you. So let me explain what this means. Because uh, this, is, this is a pivot point in the message today. You were born, you didn't know this, nobody told you, but you were born under the law. What that means is you were born accountable to the law of God. The law of God is revealed in the Old Testament, the law of God is revealed in the New Testament, but even better than that, the law of God that's written on your heart. There's something in you from time to time that says, I ought to, I ought not, people should, people should never, men should never, women should never. And there's this universal sense of ought that manifests itself in you and in the people around you. And perhaps you've never asked the question, where does that come from? You think, well, well maybe it's just because I'm an American. Or maybe it's because of the way I was raised. Maybe it's because of the parents that I had or the town that I lived in. But that is the law of God written on your heart. Paul says that at the right time, all of us, all of us came into this. That God sent his son into the world to redeem those who were born under the law. Now, we defend it. At the end of the day, we know something's wrong with us, but we defend it. We try to figure out what to do about it you know what we do about it? We look to the left and we look to the right and we try, to figure, we try to fix ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people. We think if I ever have this, if I ever do this, if I ever accomplish this, maybe enough people will look at me and say, you're all right. Now I'll, I'll begin to feel all right about me and it'll fix whatever it is that's broken inside of me. But then we discover something. Uh, eventually, every adult uh, bumps into this reality some way, somehow. That the people that we think are so all right, they don't think they're all right. The people who who we see as they've got it all together, they don't think they've got it all together. Right, the people who have accomplished more than will ever accomplish, you dig down beneath the surface, you read their books, or, or they finally break down, you have an honest conversation, and it gets out, and we realize that they have the same problems we do. Even though they look better, they have the same struggle. And all of a sudden, we realize that no matter what you have, no matter who you know, no matter how popular you are, how famous you are, how rich you are, where you live, it does not take away the wonder if I'm okay. It means that if you had, and you fill in the blank, I am a better job, better career, if you lived in that place, if you had this wife, this husband, you think, if I had something else, but the point is, you would still wonder. At the end of the day, every single person wonders, am I okay? The Apostle Paul, he goes to the root of the problem. Uh, when you were born, you were born into a broken relationship with your creator. There is a break between creator and creation. And I don't even know how to put this into words. I can't even describe to the depth that it deserves to be described. But because of that break between creator and creation, there is insecurity in you. Because of that break between creator and creation, there's insecurity in me. There is insecurity in all of us, in all of humanity, and it goes to the core of our souls. It's why uh, the most successful people still seem to be uh, driven, and you think, man, if I had that, if I knew her, if I married him, if I lived there, if I felt that way, if my kids turned out so good, I would do fine. But it's because you don't understand the depth of the brokenness between you and God, your creator. There is insecurity in you and in me. Nobody, no acquisition, no accomplishment can ever fully restore or heal. The Apostle Paul says this, But when the time set had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. To redeem, it's a transactional term. It's a financial term. It's to buy back, to win back, to regain what has been lost. It's to reattach something that has been uh, unattached. But this isn't very emotional. It's it's really not a very inspiring word uh, from Paul. But Paul says, no, that was simply a means to an end. In order that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul says that God, what God did when he sent Jesus into the world, the goal wasn't simply to say uh, that you're forgiven of your sin. Okay, he said it's bigger than that. What God did when he sent his son to the world, he made it possible for you to be, and he chose this world, this word very intentionally, to be adopted to sonship. Now, the Jewish people... Uh, The ancient Jewish people had no word for the word adoption. Uh, There's no word for adoption in ancient Hebrew texts. There wasn't even a process of adoption. The Apostle Paul is dipping into Greek and Roman world here that his his readers were very familiar with, especially in Galatia, because Galatia was a uh, Greek-Roman culture. It wasn't a Jewish culture. When he said adoption... What came to mind wasn't babies. I mean, they wouldn't have even thought about adopting a baby. I mean, it's very uh, uncommon. I mean, you wouldn't even think to adopt a baby in the first century. But it was very common to adopt adults. And in fact, it wouldn't be uncommon to receive a letter one day that read, Congratulations, you've been adopted. You don't have to sign anything. You don't have to agree to anything. You've been adopted into this person's care, provision, inheritance, etc., etc. Adults were adopted all the time. So when Paul wrote this, his audience, what they heard was this. That God, who knows me as an adult, who knows my sin, who knows my failure, who knows where I never match up, who knows your past, knows everything about you, God sent his son into the world and he made it possible for you with all your junk, with all your talent, lack of talent, connections, lack of connections, whatever it might be. God has made it possible for you to be adopted into his family, to become a part of his family. It's not that just you're, it's not just that you're forgiven. It's not just, oh, I'm going to heaven now. It's not just, okay, go and be a better person. Or, now you're in this category of people. He says, no, that's, it's far more relational than that. You've, been, you've become a child of your Creator. The creation-creator relationship that was broken has been restored. And he says this, Because you are His sons and daughters, because you are His children, God sent the Spirit of His Son Jesus into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now this is remarkable. Jesus, when He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, used this Aramaic term, Abba. It was so relational. It was so emotional. It was so intimate. That in the Greek language, there wasn't even an equivalent. The closest that the Greek language had was the word, Father, But when Paul was trying to capture the essence of what happened when God sent his son in the world to redeem us, he realized, I can't just use the word father. Father is too formal. Uh, What's the word that best captures the essence of a relationship between people who put their faith in Christ and God? He says, we'll just go with the word Jesus used, even though it's not Greek. We'll go with the Aramaic word Abba which literally means dad or daddy. Now, I don't think I can say about that about God. Maybe you say, I don't, I don't think I can say that about God. And Paul says, that's my point. There hasn't been some transaction where you're forgiven and you get a stamp. Where you're forgiven and now you go to heaven when you die. It's not that you get to go over here in this category with these people. He said, no, it's far more... Personal than that. You've been adopted into the family of God. And God is now your dad, not just father, but dad. And what if that idea, what if that idea moved from the screen into your heart, into your mind? What do you think might happen inside of you? Let me ask you this question Who do perfect parents? compare their children to? Who do perfect parents compare their children to? I mean, I've seen parents that aren't perfect, and maybe they've just had a baby who's really not so cute, but, I mean, there's not even an average parent that would hold that baby, that not-so-cute baby, and say, I wish she looks a little bit more like. I wish she looked a little bit more like. No, even average parents look at their babies and they don't compare their children to anybody else's children. In fact, when you hear a parent compare their child to another child, you don't think that there's something wrong with a child. You think there's something wrong with a parent. So let me ask you a question. Who do perfect parents compare their children to? Nobody. Who do perfect parents compare Compare their children to. Say it. Nobody. And so, who does your heavenly father compare you to? Who does your heavenly father compare you to? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. As long as Christianity is just a category for you, as long as Christianity is just, oh, I'm forgiven, as long as Christianity is, I get to go to heaven. As long as Christianity is, I'm becoming a better person. Then you are putting God at arm's length. But what if God really sent his son into the world to redeem you and it didn't stop there. But to redeem you so that he could make you a son or a daughter to the point where you could refer to him as dad. You could refer to him in the most intimate, intimate, intimate of terms. What if the Apostle Paul is right? What if Jesus is right? What if God, the best he can describe his relationship with you is you are his son. You are his daughter. You are his child. He is your dad. So let me ask you the question. Who does your heavenly father compare you to? Let me ask you another question. Whose estimation of you should you believe? Whose estimation of you should you believe? Yours or his? You see, as long as you look to your left and your right, uh, there will never be any peace. But if you began, what if I began? What if every day when I was tempted to compare myself to others, I would realize there's no win in comparison? Yeah, I might be inspired, and yeah, I might be motivated, but I can't let my heart and mind go to comparison. What if we said, Heavenly Father, I want to take my cue from you. I want to see me the way that you see me. Because I think God would say this. I think he would say, you're fine. You're fine because you're mine. No, I'm not finished with you yet. I love you just the way you are, but I'm not going to leave you that way because I love you so much. Because you are my child. We've got some growing up to do. We've got some development to do. We've got some changing to do. But I want you, what God is saying, I want you to look right here for approval. Put this in on your notes. Take your cue about you from the one who made you, the one who loves you. And the one who redeems you. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Uh, This is a couplet uh, in Hebrew text that means that you interpret one by the other. Which means the contrast to envy rots the bones is peace. Which means the kind of peace that he's talking about is the peace that you will never have as long as you are in the place of envy. In other words, as long as you're looking to the left or the right, and no matter what you have and no matter what you have accomplished and who you know, you will never have peace. You will never have peace until you decide to take your cue about you from the one who loves you, from the one who made you, from the one who created you and redeems you. And if you'll do that, I'm telling you, you will find what you're looking for. You'll find what only can be found at the center of God's will, and that is peace. Peace when you do well. Peace when you fail. Peace when you get the job. Peace when you don't get the job. Peace when you make the team. Peace when you don't make the team. Whatever it is, you'll find peace. Because whether you're a Christian or not, or religious person or not, you'll never find peace anywhere but in the eyes of your Heavenly Father who has invited you to refer to Him as Dad or in the most intimate, intimate of terms because His estimation of you is more important than everybody else's combined. Envy rots the bones. Peace gives life. And peace is found at the center in the eyes of your Heavenly Father. That's a big thought. It's simple, but it's a big thought. It's going to require what the Bible refers to as a renewing of the mind. And we're going to come back to this next week and kind of camp out on this a little bit longer. Uh, But right now, next we're going to sing, uh, sing some together, and then we're going to close today with a song. Uh, And when you get to these lines in the song, I hope that they just reach out off the screen and grab your soul. The riches of your love will always be enough Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world forever reign. Wouldn't it be wonderful just to have a day, even a day or even a week with that kind of peace? Just the peace of, of knowing that whatever happens, God is in control. He's putting in or taking out of my hand whatever he chooses And the peace comes from knowing I'm at the center of his will. Wouldn't it be great just to have just a moment with that kind of peace? Let's pray together. This is so so simple and yet so profound. And God, our hope is that, that these words would jump from the screen and jump from our Bibles into our hearts and minds. To think that your son would come uh, to redeem and to love is amazing. Help us to find you and call you dad. Uh, Father, in this moment, please draw us from the fringe uh, into the center uh, to live with peace. And say, God, I want to do your will. Uh, Give us the wisdom to know uh, what to do with this truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.